All right, good morning, church. You probably should sit down. This is going to take longer than <laughs> probably Matt wants me to. Uh, I got to say, if you know me, this may come as a surprise, but today I'm a bit nervous uh, about what I'm about. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. Nevertheless, I want you to know the Holy Spirit is going to use this for his glory, and I'm confident that this is for somebody today. My close friends will tell you I'm very passionate about my convictions as it relates to my faith, the authority of Scripture, and my relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But i got to be honest, I'm nervous. <laughs> uh, don't misunderstand this nervousness with complete hesitation because I believe the Spirit is moving and I want to be obedient to the Spirit, um, to the Word of God. Uh, so if this comes across as a little hesitation, um, again, a little disorganized, just bear with me. I believe 2 Timothy 1.8 puts it this way, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, the me he's talking about here in this verse is Apostle Paul. He's the author of 2 Timothy. He's also the author of 1 Corinthians, which we're going to go to in a little bit. Uh, rather, join me in the suffering for the gospel for the power of God. All right. I want to encourage you to test everything I'm about to say. This is my testimony, but it may not align with your interpretation of Scripture. Nevertheless, ah. Uh, Matt asked me to share, and I want to be obedient. Okay. I believe the Spirit has led me to help and encourage people, uh, and sometimes that can seem like we're suffering and making us uncomfortable, but I believe it's in those times we have the opportunity to be obedient to the Spirit, or we can succumb to our flesh and ignore the Spirit. So after church, feel free to come talk to me, ask me questions, ignore me completely, that's fine. <laughs> uh, if you've been coming here since the beginning of this year, I believe you will know that we have been focusing on intercessory prayer. Um, there's been an emphasis on that, and in light of that, I believe the Spirit is convicting me and moving in my life in ways that have been lacking. So about a week ago, I was at home alone. I was at my kitchen table. I was studying the book of Hebrews in preparation for my men's Bible study, a.k.a. the Herms, short for hermeneutics. Short little plug here. If you are a man in church and you want to get involved in a men's group, a safe space where you can Share your frustrations, share your shortcomings, dig into the word. See Rob Woolsey, the guy with the broken arm there, or Alex Estalila, or Tom Kennedy, or myself. Um, yeah, all right, plug over. <laughs> all right, so, where was I? Sorry. Anyway, I was studying Hebrews, and... I felt like the Holy Spirit was like, it just came over me, it pressed upon me, I need to pray. Uh, now this is my testimony, and shouldn't be ashamed of it, and I don't know how long each of you pray, but 
typically when I pray, it's pretty short. You know, I pray before meals. I pray throughout the day. I pray when my friends ask me to pray. Uh, but typically, I don't pray for more than five or ten minutes. And that's, that's me just being honest. However, this time, as I began to pray, I was praying for a better interpretation of Hebrews. And that led to praying for the men in my Bible study. And that led to intercessory prayer. And I began to pray for my internal family. I prayed for my wife and my kids. And at this point, I was approaching that five to ten minute mark, and I thought, you know, I spent enough time with the Lord. I was obedient. Uh, I should just close here. And the Spirit led me and said, nope, time's not up. And so I continued to pray. And that prayer led to praying for my extended family. And it led me to pray for my lost or my siblings that are far from the Lord or don't even believe in the Lord. And then that led me to pray for the city of Anchorage. And that led me to pray for our government. And after about 20 minutes, I began to pray in a way that I haven't prayed in probably more than six months. I began to pray in the Spirit. Yes, the Spirit. And when I say the Spirit, I mean in tongues. As is the case with many other times when I pray in tongues, it kind of comes out like a fire hose. Uh, so I continued to pray in the Spirit for like five minutes, and I thought, hey, I'm done. I, you know, I was obedient. It's praying in the Spirit. And as the saying goes, we plan and God laughs. And the Spirit insisted I wasn't done yet. So instead, I kept praying in the Spirit. Oh, I don't want to share this, but I'm going to. <laughs> and when I was praying in the Spirit, I've come to learn that it's better to be obedient than to rebel. Twice in my life, there have been times when I was praying in the Spirit and thought it was time to switch back to my known language, English. And this has happened twice, and literally I was unable literally unable it really freaked me out not gonna lie i remember pausing and thinking about what i wanted to say but when i opened my mouth it didn't come out in english it continued to come out in tongues it was kind of like jim carrey in liar liar if you've seen the movie and he holds up the pen and he's like the pen is And he just can't say the pen is red. And for me, like, I literally could not switch from my prayer language to English. And it's, it's weird. And I haven't told a lot of people that, but Matt encouraged me to share that. So uh, this time, as I was praying... I felt like the Spirit said, you're not done, and I remembered the pen is blue, and I just kept praying in the Spirit. Now, 
I don't know where you stand on the gifts of the Spirit. I don't know if you're a continuationist and you believe the gifts are for today, or if you're a cessationist and you believe the gifts ended with the apostles. Um, I was hesitant to share today because I know this is a hot topic, extremely debatable, and often tongues triggers people. I grew up in a charismatic church and I've witnessed the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit. And by the grace of God and the Word of God, I've come to know that there's order. And that's not to say all charismatic churches get it wrong. I just want you to be clear I'm not saying that. But if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 14, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14. If you look at verse 1, it says, Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So what are these spiritual gifts? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 12. To each is given... Sorry, are you there? 1 Corinthians 12. Start in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the work of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though the body are one, so it is with Christ. So, if you've been told that you're less of a Christian because you don't speak in tongues, have them go to 1 Corinthians 12 because we are not all acting in all of these gifts all the time. They're not for everyone. They are for you as the Spirit wills it. Okay? So that's not to say that you can't have them because Paul over back in 1 Corinthians 14 says we are to pursue the gifts. So we are called to pursue the gifts, all the gifts. But if you don't have one, don't let anyone tell you that you are less of a Christian, that you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit in some way. I'm not going to go far into that. But if you believe in God, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. That's right. It says pray earnestly. So, so what does this mean? Um, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. There's really three types of, of, of tongues, in my opinion. I'm going to talk about two of them. I'm not going to talk about the third, and I'll tell you why briefly. The first time we hear about tongues is in Acts 2, when Peter, after um, Pentecost and the tongues of fire come on him, he goes out and he preaches to 5,000 people, and in one day, 5,000 people get saved. And these people are from all over. So he's 
speaking to Germans. He's speaking to, in Aramaic. He's speaking Greek. But Peter's not up there like, all right, I'm going to give a 15-minute sermon in German. And then a 15-minute sermon in Aramaic. No, he got up there and he spoke one time. And when it went out, the Spirit used it, and it spoke to each one of you in your tongue. That's a known tongue, okay? The second tongue, if you go to 1 Corinthians 14.2, it says, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. If you go to 14.4a, it says, The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. 14.9 says, So with yourself, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. And this is a big difference between this tongue and the third tongue. Okay, the third tongue is somebody speak, stands up in church and speaks out a tongue, and then somebody interprets it. We're not going to go into that. That one is a whole sermon, <laughs> like a whole sermon series. Uh, but let's look at 14.9. 14.9. This is where, like, there's order. Paul says, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, excuse me, I read that, sorry. Uh, 14, 14, and 15a. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray also with my mind. And this is where the order comes in. Paul says in 14, uh, shoot, I wrote down the wrong verse. He says, nevertheless, if you go down a little further, somebody can help me out. I'm going to read this. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct, instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So I just want to encourage you. God is moving. And in intercessory prayer is real, and we need it. The people of the church need it. The people, the lost need it. The people of our community need it. Our city needs it. Our government needs it. And we want to be about the word here. And I will just say, my prayer started off in known languages, and it turned to tongues. But Paul says that he'd rather have you speak five known words than a tongue, so you don't have to pre speak in tongues to pray, okay? So I just want to close in a prayer real quick, and we're going to get back to worship. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and for the way you encourage us, the opportunities you give us to be obedient, Lord, and the faithfulness that you see us through. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that intercedes. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church that communicates with you daily. I pray that we would be a church that isn't afraid to get down on our knees and spend more than 30 minutes praying, more than five minutes praying, more than just praying over our meals. Father, we want to be 
in relationship with you. And anyone in this room knows relationship involves communication. We want to be in commune with you, Lord. Help us today, God, to seek out your word and spend time in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Check one. She did those announcements on the fly because her husband is at home with a sick baby. So please be praying for Caleb because he woke up this morning and he was not feeling good. All right, so last week, if you were here, we launched into our series on the book of Jonah. And it was my goal last week to push some of your buttons because I wanted to get you to ask yourself the question, do I really believe what I believe? And is my belief based on a study of the book itself or is my belief based on something I've heard from someone else? Somebody remembers. Hey, by the way, I was given a precious gift today. Larry the Cucumber, Reginald the Camel. And so you guys can see that they were paying attention and they gifted me this morning. So I'm excited about that. That'll go in my office and it will remind me that there are things that we will inevitably get right and there are things that we will inevitably get wrong and that's okay. So without further ado, why don't we just pray and then we can begin our Bible study for this morning. Does that sound like a plan? All right, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for each and every person who is here and who is present. I pray, God, that your spirit would be upon us all. I ask that the words that go out, Lord, would be guided and directed by you and that I would be in a position of submission before you as I speak this morning. We pray, Lord, that the things that are said would bring a deeper understanding to the text because that's going to reveal a deeper understanding of your character and your nature and your heart for the nations. So, Lord, as I speak, I pray that you would speak. Whatever I say, Lord, that is worthless, help it to fall by the wayside. And whatever I say, Lord, that is worth remembering for the individuals in the room, help them to grab hold of that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, we are going to tackle Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Hey, three whole verses. Let's do it. You can turn to Jonah in your Bible. You can turn to Jonah on your phone these days. And if you don't have a Bible and you don't have a phone, we got the script on the screen. We're reading from the ESV for this series our author, who is anonymous, as we discovered last week, writes, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. We talked about it last week. This book is so much more than a child's story. It's a shame that it's been generally allocated to the Sunday school classroom. 
Because the book of Jonah has a message that the modern church needs to hear now. Maybe now more than ever. So as we begin our sermon, our Bible study this morning, we're going to ask the question, who is Jonah the son of Amittai? And if you were here last week, you're going to say, wait, we already answered that question. We answered that in our introduction from last week, and I would say, yes, I agree that we answered that question by placing Jonah specifically into space and time. However, it's my opinion that we should take a second pass at this topic, because in reality, there's always more that can be said. And if there's more that can be said, we have to ask the question, should it be said? Well, after this, you'll be the judge of that. Some of this will be a review and some of it will be new information. When I talk about new information, I'm not talking about stuff Matt discovered. I'm talking about stuff that we didn't cover last week. So the question, as we open our study this morning, is who is Jonah, the son of Amittai? Now on the surface, this seems to be a rather simple question. Nevertheless, as we discovered last week, the answer is not as obvious as one may think. Now, if we were to do a close reading of the whole book of Jonah, like we did last week, in fact, we didn't just read it last week, we listened to it being read while we read it from the screen. If we were to do that, we would quickly discover that the book of Jonah, it never directly, it never explicitly identifies Jonah as a prophet of God. It simply refers to him as the son of Amittai. Now, I understand that it's been a week, and you may not have your notes in front of you right now, but I'm wondering if anybody can recall the reference to the only other place in the whole of the Old Testament where Jonah is mentioned. Hey, hey, I got like three, four voices chiming out. 2 Kings chapter 14, we're looking for verse 23. Through 25. Give, your guys, give yourselves a round of applause. You guys got some good memory. We're learning to study the text, and like we talked about, dual disciplines, committing to memory what we both hear and read. Amen? It's happening. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 25. Let's put it on the screen, and let's read through it. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Now we're going to stop here, just like we did last week, and we're going to ask ourselves the same question. Are we aware of what it is that the author is doing right now in verse 23? In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of the southern kingdom Judah, Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, king of the northern kingdom, Israel, began to reign in its capital city, Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Our author is telling us that whatever events are unfolding in this section of the text are transpiring after the united kingdom under David and Solomon has been divided. We have the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city, Jerusalem and Zion, We have its northern kingdom, Israel, with its capital city, Samaria. And that's what the author is making sure we understand right now. Israel is divided. This is not God's will, by the way. 
And he, Jeroboam, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He, Jeroboam the second, restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gethhefer. Now, you guys might be asking yourselves the obvious question. Why did Matt put ESV slash NLT and combine what the text says into one slide? Well, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Last week I made a mistake. When you make a mistake, you got to own it. You got to talk about it. And then you got to move past it, right? So I made two mistakes. I was rushing through this portion of the text as I was teaching last week. I only had the ESV up here, and I hadn't actually read this in a dynamic translation. And so I was looking at what I did last week, and I inverted. I called Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the second, and vice versa. And that's a recipe for confusion. I also talked about them as if they were father and son, and they're not. Jeroboam II, who was named after the king Jeroboam I, who reigned before him, think about it like this. Just as Saul of Tarshish was named after Saul of Benjamin, the first king in Israel, so Jeroboam II was named after Jeroboam I. They're not father and son. So when you make a mistake and you recognize it, husbands, wives, sons, daughters, have the courage to own it. Have the courage to repent of that mistake and then do your best not to repeat it. Amen? Amen. If I can do it, you can do it. Right? Okay, so this is a collective effort here. By the way, I was really picking on the Calvinists last week when I made fun of them for their interpretation of Jeremiah 18. So, yeah. If you are a Calvinist and you're in the house, it was... (laughs) It was probably just an unwarranted side remark that I didn't need to make. And I'll just make you a deal for the rest of our time that we're in this body together as we're walking towards our Lord and Savior. You can remind me how wrong I am on the means of grace, and you can remind me how wrong I am on soteriology. And then I'll laugh and we'll have a good time. Amen? Amen. All right, when we make mistakes, we own them. Now, not to distract from what we just read in this portion of the text, right? We're going to leave it up. But when we do something like this, when we experience something like this, it teaches us that it's worth slowing down, right? As Americans, we are just so fast-paced. What's next? I got to get it done. Check the box. Move on. Go, go, go. Don't do that in your Bible study. In your Bible study... Pump the brakes, drive slow, homie. You ever heard that song? You know what I'm saying? No? That too big of a throwback for most of the people in here? (laughs) Look, it's worth slowing down, all right? This portion of the text communicates a massive amount of information if we just stop and look at it. What did we learn that can aid us in answering our initial question, who is Jonah? Because that's the question we're after answering. Well, the first thing we learned was that the life and ministry of Jonah took place sometime after the United Kingdom split. 
Now, Art told me this week, he said, Matt, you did an excellent job of putting Jonah into space and showing us where he lived on a map. But you did a horrible job of showing us, he didn't say horrible, <laughs> hyperbole. <laughs> but you did not, he said something like, you didn't do as good of a job putting Jonah into time. He said, you mentioned the dates, but we couldn't see them. And so that's hard to track, right? So we can see the divided monarchy takes place, obviously, after the united monarchy. And it took place sometime. Times are always approximate, and they're always up for debate, all right? So it took time. It took place sometime around 931 BC, in my opinion, based on the scholars that I read and agree with. Now, second, we learn that Jonah occupied the office of prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, who ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, before we change the slide, you can see that somewhere in here on the timeline is when Jeroboam ruled, and you can see that Hosea and Amos are peers of Jonah. And I believe that Jonah lived early 8th century not late 8th century. So let's go to the next slide. If this one's too confusing for you, here's a simplified one that I made. And this I basically stole from Tim Mackey. So nothing's original with Matt Oberlander. You're safe there. All right? But here's the deal. Jonah, early 8th century, he lived after Solomon and before the close of the Old Testament with the life of Malachi. It's real easy to remember at that point. You just put him after David, after Solomon, and before Malachi. Yeah. yeah this is probably a typo. No, I, I, backed, out, I backed out a number there. Um, let's see. Yeah, it would be, uh, it would be 930 B.C. Yep. All right. So here's the deal. We're putting Jonah into space and time as we're asking the question, who is Jonah? This is the third thing that the passage taught us. We discovered that Jonah was from Geth Hefer. Here's a new piece of information that we didn't cover last week. The book of Joshua locates the tribe, locates Geth Hefer within the territory of the tribe of Zebulon. So if you're a note taker, Write down Joshua chapter 19, verse 10 through 13, and you'll see as Joshua and the conquest is taking place that this area that is allocated to the tribe of Zebulon includes the area where Geth Hefer is. Okay, so we're putting Jonah even into more clear space and time. Now here's a map. We looked at this last week. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. I hope you have 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23 through 25 in your mind. Here is Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. Here is Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom, also referred to in the text as Zion, okay? Jonah's not from the south. He's from the north, okay? Jonah's hometown is just east of Megiddo and just west of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're asking yourself, man, where is Geth Hefer? Well, first, I need to think about an iconic piece of geography, well, Matt said the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is a famous place in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So just about six, 700 years before Jesus was on the scene, Jonah was living in the same area. That's how we can put it on the map, like that. Okay, we can also say that First and Second Kings 
was not written by northerners. Northern Israel had already gone into captivity, captivity at the hands of the Neo-Assyrian army. And so when First and Second Kings is written, it's written by southern authors. That tells us that Jonah is a popular prophet because although he's a prophet in the kingdom of sinners, according to the southern view, they still include him in the writing of the, the Deuteronomic history of kings, and they talk about what he did and how it came to pass, okay? The last thing that 2 Kings chapter, uh, what is it, chapter 14, verse 23 through 25 teaches us is that the, Jonah pro- the, that the prophet Jonah had zero issue delivering a message of grace and mercy to the Israelites. Let's put the text back up there. Look at this. He prophesies blessing, a restoration of the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah, and he prophesies this blessing while Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and while he, like Jeroboam I, made Israel to sin. You want to talk about the grace and mercy of God? This is a great place to take somebody. Because while Israel was in tragic, dire need of repentance, God still extended their borders and blessed them. Patience is a key attribute in the character and the nature of God. Unfortunately, Jonah refused to embrace a similar worldview and practice when he was asked to carry the word of the Lord to the Gentiles in Nineveh. So this too reveals something to us about the character and nature of Jonah. He, like we, are wicked and evil people. We all have things in us that need to be shifted. And in Jonah, this thing that he had where he was willing to preach and prophesy grace and mercy to his ethnic brotherhood, but not to the Gentile brotherhood, that is a character flaw. You don't want to be willing to preach mercy and grace to some and not all because we forget that at one time we were far off as well. Nobody is born a Christian. What else do we know about Jonah? Well, in the Hebrew language, his name means dove. Jonah means dove. And Amitai means truth, steadfastness, and or reliability. Tim Mackey refers to Jonah as dove, son of faithfulness. Cue the irony, everybody. (laughs) Because Jonah is anything but faithful. Remember we said it last week. Authors of the ancient Near East have zero issue using literary devices such as irony, satire, and humor as the driving force to aid in making their points, as we've just discovered. You're one verse into the letter or the book of Jonah, and you realize that the author is already messing with you. You're like, dove, son of faithfulness. And by verse 3, you're going to be like, no, he's not! (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) And the author's going to go, yeah, come on a little closer. So now that we know who Jonah is, maybe we should talk about the role of the prophet. In the Old Testament, there are three major terms used to refer to men and women who were responsible to speak or transmit the Word of God. The most common one is prophet, obviously. 
Two other terms, seer and man of God, are also used in the Old Testament. Now, J. Daniel Hayes notes that a book like 1 Samuel uses all three, and because it uses all three, it indicates to us that they were nearly synonymous in their application. So let's test this claim. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8-10, through 10, The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. I missed putting that in white. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, this is a wonderful passage because this is evidence that whoever wrote First and Second Samuel, which is just one book in the Hebrew Bible, they wrote it way after all these events happened. So when people are like, oh no, the scriptures were being written like almost as soon as they transpired, just be like, nah, dog, <laughs> that ain't the case. The author tells us formerly in Israel when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. That means long ago, they used to speak differently. <laughs> but now, today, we say prophet, not seer. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? It actually puts perspective into the text. And you can see that the man of God bookends all of these terms in their usage, which means they are interchangeable. And if it happens here, you got to ask yourself, where else are there interchangeable terms in the text? And what am I unaware of? So the three major terms are these. And it indicates that they're nearly synonymous in their application. In their book, An Introduction to Biblical Interpretation, scholars Klein, Blomberg, and Hubbard Jr. identify the differences between foretelling and forthtelling. These are things that we need to be aware of as modern students of the text, because these are different ways that the prophets operate. Foretelling, predictions about the future, events yet to come, either near or far. We're going to have an, an excellent example in Isaiah, and I'm going to need two readers to volunteer to read. So who wants to read Isaiah? Okay, Deb will do it. And then, uh, Leslie, you want to read Daniel? So if you guys want to look those up, you could come one. Well, both, we'll have you both read from this side of the stage today. Forthtelling, which differs from foretelling, is an announcement of imminent divine judgment and this can happen in the present tense, and it can happen in both the near and far future. So we're going to look at some examples of the difference in real time in the text of Scripture. Because if we don't know how to identify the differences between these things, we're really going to struggle to read the prophets right. And reading the prophets wrong gets you bad eschatology. Wherever you stand on the spectrum of eschatology is fine. But reading the prophets wrong will get you bad eschatology. So here we go. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 through 16, Deb. And then I want you to immediately read 8, 3 through... Well, let me make some comments after you read this mic right here. Yeah, it's on. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 through 16. Okay. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay, so hold on, stand by, because I'm going to have you read 8, 3 through 4 in a moment. So we have a prediction of a baby that will be born. And before this baby is born, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be dominated and taken into captivity. And the southern kingdom of Judah will also be dominated and taken into exile. So let's read 8, 3 through 4 now. And I went to the prophetess. She conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahir Shalel Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Azria. Azria? Assyria. Assyria. Thank you. All right. So here we have the fulfillment of the prophecy that was spoken in chapter 7 in the near view. And someone might say, well, wait, the baby was supposed to be named Emmanuel, and this one had a different name. But the fulfillment of the near-view prophecy stands in what is said in the close of the prophecy. And so you have the far-view fulfillment of the child that will be born of the virgin. Anybody want to take a guess at who that is? It's Jesus. The Sunday school answer will win you the prize in that one. So you can see that fourth that forthtelling has both near and far elements embedded sometimes in the same prophetic elements. And we need to be able to parse that stuff out. Okay, Daniel chapter 5, verse 25 through 31. Leslie, come on up and read that for us. We're going to experience forthtelling now over and against foretelling. Okay. I'm not a language smith, so. Uh, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mena, mena, telka, a person. This is the interpretation of the message. Mina, or mena, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Teklo, tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Thank you. So we see it. Imminent divine judgment. It takes place in the present tense. That night, Belteshazzar's kingdom is stripped from him as he's conquered by Darius. Babylon, it would take some time to conquer it in its entirety. And by the time it's conquered in its entirety, it's not just the Medes, but it's the Medes and the Persians who are waging war over it. And so you can see how even in foretelling, there are multifaceted ways to read the prophecy that's taking place. And so we need to be able to ask ourselves, am I capable of doing this? The reason that we need to be able to do this is because the author expects us to be able to do this. And if we can't, we're going to read something into it. Chances are we're going to make a mistake. 
to go beyond what we just discovered in regard to foretelling and forthtelling, I'd like to know if we're aware of the hierarchical structure in Israel that was set into place by God at Sinai. This is sometimes referred to as a threefold theocracy. We should know about this too. The office of the prophet held the greatest amount of authority in Israel. Full stop, period. This is a wonderful graph that Sandra Richter put in her Epic of, Eries, uh, Epic of Eden series. You can see that Yahweh sits enthroned as a triune God above all. But what you see within the triune God is how God set up the government in Israel. The prophet speaks to God, and he hears from God, and he is God's emissary to both the king and the people. The king is under the authority of the prophet, and the king is responsible for the direction that the nation of Israel goes in. The priest is required to remain wholly set apart so that he can intercede for the people of Israel. And so this is the trifold setup of the theocracy in Israel, and we need to be aware of this. Sandra Richter refers to the prophet as the kingmaker and the kingbreaker in Israel. Now, I want to give us some examples of this because we need to be familiar with why this claim makes sense. 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, you can see the prophet Samuel anoints Saul in the presence of Israel. That means that the prophet Samuel makes Saul king. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, in verse 13 through 14, Saul grows impatient. He doesn't want to wait for the prophet. And so what does he do? He sacrifices an animal before going into battle. And then Samuel shows up and he's like, yo, bro, what did you do? And he's like, well, and Samuel's like, that's it, bro. The kingdom will not be dedicated to your lineage anymore. You will be the last king from the tribe of Benjamin who sits on the throne in Israel. Chapters 15, 1 Samuel, verse 25 through 28, they're having a little face-off. The king is in his throne room, and he falls at the feet of the prophet Samuel. And when he falls, he grabs hold of his cloak, and he tears Samuel's cloak. And Samuel says, as you tore my cloak, Saul, so God has torn the kingdom from your hands, and he has given it to your neighbor. Kingmaker, kingbreaker. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. While Saul is still king, Samuel anoints David. Can you imagine what Saul was feeling? Can you imagine what that young boy David was feeling? Knowing that there is a king on the throne who is still operating, and somehow you've been anointed to strip him of that role? Wow. The pressure, right? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 14, and 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38 through 50, are for the note takers. You can write those down 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 14, and 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38 through 50, and you can go see more examples of how Nathan rebukes David. And how if that were any other nation in the world, the king would have just said, off with that man's head. 
but he was actually scared of what the prophet was saying, right? Because the prophet spoke for God, and it was God who told Nathan, go give David this message. And then in 1 Kings, the note-takers will see that both Zadok the priest and the prophet in Israel anoint Solomon when David is about to die, and they make a new king. So it is true that the prophet is not only the highest authority, but it is true to refer to them as the kingmaker and the kingbreaker as well. Now finally, I want us to consider the difference between the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet, because there is a difference. The gift of prophecy functioned when the Spirit of God rested upon or came powerfully upon a person. Over and against the experience of Yahweh calling an individual to be his emissary to the people of Israel and or its surrounding nations. And Jonah is, I believe, the only one who is called to speak a word that is to the nations. Elijah is called to anoint a king in Samaria. He dies and Elisha completes the task. But I don't know of another prophet who is called to deliver a message necessarily. And you can say, well, what about the oracles to Tyre and to Sidon and to Egypt and to Edom? Well, those were not spoken outside the land of Israel, and those were given about those countries to the people of Israel to offer them hope in the midst of the catastrophe that they were facing while they were choosing idolatry over Yahweh. So the example of the gift you can find in these passages, in Numbers, you know, these men start prophesying because the Spirit rushes upon them, and Joshua wants to make them stop. And Moses is like, nah, dog, I wish all of you would prophesy. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, King Saul prophesies with the prophets. And they're like, hey, is Saul of the prophets? But if you keep reading, it says when he was finished prophesying and then he never did it again. Examples of the office of the prophet. Your foundational text is Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 through 15. This is where you find the instructions in the Torah for how to deal with prophets. And then you see the call of Moses, the call of Isaiah, the call of Jeremiah, and these are permanent theocratic offices where they hold the highest position of authority in the nation of Israel until they're either removed or they die. Having answered our opening question, who is Jonah, and discussed the role of the prophet, I think we're ready to turn our attention to the text of Jonah. So can you guys... Together, read this out loud for me, please. Now, Old Testament scholar Leslie Allen notes that this wonderful little book opens with a time-honored expression which exposes us to the reality that God willingly chooses to speak to his people. You could read Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. You could close your Bible, put it down, and just say, I am reminded of the reality that the creator and the sustainer of the universe, who is eternal, desires to be in relationship with me, who is finite. And it is he who has willfully and freely chosen to condescend to my level and to speak to me in terms that I can understand, though he is infinite and I am not. Amen? Amen. 
That's a beautiful reality that you find just in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The God of the Bible is a personal, relational God. And he has gone to great lengths to pursue you, as we're going to see as we study the rest of Jonah. Now, as we can see, the author of Jonah is employing a standard phrase in biblical Hebrew in verse 1 of the book of Jonah. In verse 1, we read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then we think, well, it had done that so many other times in the past with so many other prophets. And then we would say, the Lord spoke. What's the prophet's responsibility? Well, the prophet's duty is to respond. Amen? That's a word for everybody in here. Not just for the prophets. That's a word for everybody in here. When God speaks, we respond. Amen? All right. Now, John Walton argues that the opening phrase in the book of Jonah should be translated and understood as the instruction of the Lord. The instruction of the Lord rather than the more common translation, the word of the Lord. And if we take a step back and we look at this passage in the opening of Jonah 1, I think his argument actually holds some weight. Because when we hear the phrase, the word of the Lord, we tend to think about the message that the prophets of God spoke to the people of God. However, verse 2 reveals God's instructions through three clear commands. Command number one, arise. Jonah, get up. Prepare for service. Command number two, go to Nineveh. God is not messing around. He's speaking very clearly. He has pinpointed the location for this message. Command number three, call out against it. This statement requires the prophet to proclaim a message of judgment upon Nineveh. Saints, is this an act of foretelling or forthtelling? Forthtelling. You guys were paying attention. Everybody gets a gold star. As we can see, Jonah is now responsible to announce imminent divine judgment against Nineveh. This is an act of forthtelling. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about it. We went over the history of what they did. They were conquering the known world. Yes, they were having some problems, especially during the life of Jonah. You know, during the rule of Jeroboam II, the Assyrian nation was struggling, but it was still powerful. But they were known for actively filleting people alive and skinning them alive. They were known for pulling tongues out of living people and removing testicles from warriors. They were known for sticking heads on the tops of poles and making the friends and family parade through the streets after they had taken victory over the towns. The Assyrian nation was brutal. And again, to quote Dr. Sandra Richter, she says that they made the Roman Empire look like child's play. So study the history of the Assyrian kings, because when you study the history of the Assyrian kings, you actually see Israel is mentioned repeatedly in their history. And their history is not in the Bible. So all that extra biblical historical study that you're going to do is just going to confirm the word of the Lord all the more. But can you imagine being called to travel approximately 500 miles so that you can proclaim a message of destruction to one of the most dangerous places on the face of the earth? 
I mean, we talked about it. The northern kingdom, here's the Sea of Galilee. There's Nineveh, and there ain't no planes, trains, or automobiles. No Nike Air Maxes. No trail boots. Straight up Jesus cruisers. <laughs> and a walk 500 miles, Jonah, into the lion's den, and I need you to proclaim destruction. So at this point, we know that God has clearly spoken to Jonah. However, his, in his instructions, we find this strange little statement. For their evil has come up before me. How, how saints, are we supposed to interpret this? How are we supposed to understand this? I mean, are we supposed to believe that God is unaware of something? Are we supposed to buy into the idea that somehow this is news to God? Because <laughs> that's what the atheist is going to tell you. Look. You say that God's omniscient, but then you got stuff like this in the Bible. It's like, okay. Well, if context determines meaning, bro, then let's look at the context. Because we have to remember that the context is greater than you. You're a human being. You're trying to preach a pretext. And a pretext is a text that lacks context. So let's push pause and let's put ourselves into the context of the text. And then let's see if God is omniscient. And just Smack them down. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Yeah, with love, you know? I said last week, laugh at them. I'm sure people were like, well, that's mean. I'm like, well, I mean, I could say a lot worse things than laugh at you. I mean, if, if you want to go if you want to go to brass tacks, you know? So what we're looking at is this idea that their evil has come up before me. And we're asking ourselves, what are we supposed to do with a statement like this in the Bible? We do not buy into the idea that God is unaware, and we do not buy into the idea that this is somehow news. That would be a naive approach to the text. I love what Kevin Youngblood says. He says, this phrase, their evil has ascended before me, is a rare idiom suggesting that Nineveh's wickedness has reached critical mass. And because it's reached critical mass, it now requires divine intervention. This is something that is very familiar throughout the text of the Torah because it's nothing new to Scripture. So let's look at the text of Torah and help see if it helps us understand what's actually being said here. And the Lord said, what have you done? Does he not know? He's talking to Cain. We know that he knows because he says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. But I'm still going to ask you, what have you done? People like to say, see, God doesn't know what's going on. They like to stop right here. And they like to ignore the reality that he speaks very personally to Cain. And this is not literal. The blood of Abel doesn't have a mouth. And it's not like... Cain murdered me. <laughs> it's figurative language. And it's how God is confronting the situation. It proves that God knows and that he's giving Cain the opportunity to repent. This is God pursuing Cain, no different than he's pursuing the Ninevites, and it's an act of God's grace and mercy in the midst of great wickedness. Let's look at the next one. Then the Lord said to Abram, 
You know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites has not hit critical mass, Abram. It does not require divine intervention at this point. But it will. And when it does, your people, my people, will take the land. Amen? Okay, we'll look at one more. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether what they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I'll know. <laughs> the, the awesome thing about this story is that God does reconnaissance through two angels. He doesn't even put boots on ground in Sodom. He takes his heavenly host, and he says, I'm going to talk to Abraham. You guys go, and what you see and what you experience, you report back to me. And then we will make the decision. Remember, the angels bring destruction no different than Yahweh rains down fire from Yahweh in heaven on earth. Right? So here we are. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry. Does God not know? <laughs> no, he knows and he's going. And his going is an act of grace and mercy. Why? Because by his going, Lot and his family are redeemed out of the destruction. God is constantly pursuing wicked people who are doing wicked things because he wants to reconcile them back to himself. Amen? Amen. You can find the gospel in Jonah all day. You can find it in the text of Genesis all day. In light of these three examples, we can see that the language in the close of verse 2 is not to be taken literally. Don't read this book in a wooden sense. You're going to do yourself a disservice if you try to limit God by putting him into a box. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Repetition, repetition, repetition. There are other words in there that are being repeated as well. Now before we deal with the prophet's response to God, I want us to ask the question, why Tarshish? Everybody say Tarshish. On three, one, two, three. Tarshish. Tarshish. <laughs> Check this out. Again, I don't think that this is something we're supposed to read literally. Okay, is Tarshish a literal place? Absolutely, 100%, it's a real place. We looked at this on the map last week. <laughs> but I'm telling you, I don't think we're supposed to read this literally. Why would I say something like that? Well, I would say something like that because history dictates that multiple locations throughout the ancient Near East were either known to, uh, known as, or referred to as Tarshish. The most common identification 
And the scholars are split on this, but the most common identification for the space of geography mentioned in Jonah has been Tartarus, which is located on the south coast of Spain. However, the precise location of Tarshish in the book of Jonah remains unknown. You have multiple ports in the ancient Near East that were referred to as Tarshish because the ships of Tarshish sailed from Tarshish to the ports that were owned by Tarshish. So we don't know exactly which place Jonah's talking about fleeing. Yeah. It is not the same as where Saul is from. Where Saul is from is going to be located over here in this area. So there you have, yeah, so there you have another, you know, spatially unique, but yet sharing the same sort of name type of geography on the map. Now, if this is true, that we don't know the specific location, why would the author mention it at all? Is he messing with us? Well, I don't think he's messing with us. I believe that the author is attempting to communicate a deeper reality. How many of us know that the Bible reveals the character and the nature of God? Okay, so if you're missing the character and the nature of God, you're missing it. And what's going on right here in the literature is revealing the character and nature of God and the character and nature of humanity and how they are drastically different. This is a deeper reality, one that the original audience would have immediately been able to identify. Tarshish, wherever it was, it represented the city that was most distant from Jonah's homeland. It was by definition the end of the known world at the time. Therefore, Jonah's heart was to flee as far as humanly possible. Anybody ever been there? Timbuktu. Timbuktu. That's exactly the modern translation of it. That's actually in two of the commentaries that I read. Good call, Rob. But has anybody's heart ever been there with Jonah? Yes. You're lying if you say it hasn't. Look, being a Christian is no easier than being a prophet. <laughs> Can you understand that what God was asking Jonah to do was like taking a, a Jewish rabbi and saying, we're going to put you on a bird, we're going to jump you in with the 101st Airborne during World War II, and we're going to ask you to find the Third Reich, and we're going to ask you to tell them that they need to cease or be destroyed. How many rabbis do you know that would take up the opportunity to do that, voluntarily leave behind their family and their life? No. Nobody. And so what Jonah was asked to do by God was difficult. And so we can immediately identify, that's me! <laughs> so often I look down on this man and I mock this man and I make fun of this man and I need to take a good look in the mirror. <laughs> Because I'm no different than Jonah. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, then we got to admit, sometimes, some of us, more often than not, we feel the only thing left to do is flee as far as humanly possible. I just want to get away. And if I can't get away physically, I'm going to disassociate mentally and emotionally. Shifting our attention to Jonah's behavior, we've already identified that God has called Jonah, get up! 
he says. Arise! Recall the language of verse 2. Arise, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. However, Jonah does the opposite. He went down to Joppa, and then he went down into the ship. He didn't get up and go where he was supposed to go. He would have went north. He would have got up, and he would have went up. He arose, and the readers are like, this northern prophet's going to be obedient? Are you kidding me? And immediately they start laughing and go, of course the northern prophet is running in the opposite direction. If the southern kingdom would have only realized they should have heeded the word of the prophets as well, maybe they wouldn't have gone into exile. Well, that's a word for you. You might be traveling toward exile and not even know it. Worse, you may be traveling toward exile and you may know it. Stop! Repent! Turn around and return to God. He is speaking clearly. Get up! Go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I'm do the opposite, dog. I'm going to avoid picking on the Calvinist. He went down to Joppa. And then he went down into the ship. Ultimately, Jonah was attempting to travel westward. However, once again, the author is communicating that the reality of Jonah's disobedience has got him on a downward descent, not a westward one. Can we see the double entendre here, everybody? The greater reality is the spiritual reality. Jonah's current trajectory has him oriented into a downward spiral, and he's literally traveling west, but he's spiritually traveling down toward chaos and death. Everything about Jonah, everything about Jonah's actions is diametrically opposed to Yahweh's commission. Moses and Jeremiah believed that they were unqualified, and they argued with God, one because of speech and one because of age. Elijah had a victory, and he fled, but when he fled, he fled to the mountain of God, toward the presence of God, longing for a revelation with God. Jonah's behavior, this is unprecedented in the mind of the ancient Israelite. Orthodox Jew Uriel Samuels writes that Jonah was not satisfied with passive disobedience. He gets up and without a word does precisely the opposite of what God has instructed him to do. And I'm like, that's me! It's me, yo. It's like a Sniper's laser right on my heart. That's me. I'm constantly rebelling against the will of God. I'm constantly rejecting the word of God. And I'm no different than Jonah. That's a good word. One word sermon right there. Repent. Don't harden your heart. Right? Hebrews. Y'all are studying Hebrews. The last thing I want to point out is that Jonah's disobedience cost him something. Physically, he paid the fare. However, before this chapter ends, he will have paid with his life. Saints, I believe that the thrust of the author is that what we choose to do, it matters. Are there any runners in the house today? Guilty as charged. I was 
newly saved, pursuing God to the greatest degree that I physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally could, but I was wrapped up in smoking weed. I was convinced that God had given me access to marijuana so that I could get off drinking alcohol, taking antidepressants, and mood stabilizers. And you know what? I was right. God had given me marijuana so that I could accomplish that. And I was sitting in my house, free from all of these things that I was enslaved to, I was ripping my bong and playing Skyrim and listening to the Bible. That was what I did. Get high in the morning, ride my bike, listen to sermons, come home, get high in the afternoon, play Skyrim, listen to the Bible, get high with my wife at the end of the day, watch TV. My life was consumed with smoking marijuana. But remember, God gave me that so that I could be free of these other things. Sure enough, one day, I had my six-foot bong out, no joke, full of ice, packed it with some weed, topped it with some keef, had my wife light it. I was getting real high. She left. I had to go to the bathroom. I went upstairs, sitting in the bathroom, and I hear the voice of God. And he speaks to me so gently, and he says, Matthew, if you choose to quit smoking marijuana, our relationship will grow in ways that you cannot imagine. Ephesians chapter two. More than you, Ephesians chapter four, more than you can ask or imagine, right? You know what I did? I jumped up, I found my bong, I packed it with a bowl, I put all my keef on it, I broke a pipe, I scraped out some res, packed that in there, I wanted to smoke that voice away. I was a runner. Same house. Same atmosphere. Same experience. I gotta go to the bathroom again. And I hear the voice of God. This is Matthew. If you decide to quit smoking pot, our relationship will grow in ways that you can't imagine. F that. Where's my bong? This is a part of my identity, God. You gave me this. This freed me from booze. This freed me from sleep meds. This freed me from antidepressants. And God was going, yes, and now you made it an idol. You're no longer turning to me to give you things to deliver you. You're turning to the things that I gave you to deliver you. You've turned from the creator to the created. Come back to me, my son. Said, no, Lord. This is my thing. I'm the Christian who gets to smoke weed. I'm the Christian who has a good reason. I'm the one who deployed. I'm the one who has PTSD. I'm the one who has depression. I'm the one who has anxiety. And I don't get suicidal. I get homicidal. I need weed. God didn't say anything. He just told me twice, if you choose, my son, to give this up, 
our relationship will grow in ways that you can't imagine. Third time, same house, same room, same experience, and I hear the voice of God. Matthew, if you choose, if you choose, our relationship will grow in ways that you can't imagine. I was so scared to tell anybody that I had heard the voice of God, I didn't even tell my wife. I thought she would have thought I was crazy. I thought the church would have thought I was crazy. So I hit it, and I told God, okay, I'm done smoking weed. My family's done buying weed. We're bartenders. We can get tipped out in weed easy so my wife can continue to smoke, but I won't smoke. And from that day, I made a commitment to the Lord that I would stop fleeing. It was a process. Some people say, well, look where you are now. You know what I like to respond? Can you imagine if I would have said yes the first time where I'd be? Why delay? How many more books could I have read? How many more podcasts could I have listened to? How much more time in prayer on my knees before the Lord could I have spent sober-minded? How many more interactions with human beings that I was having could I have had a greater impact because I wasn't clouded in my ability to speak and engage with the humans? Because when God speaks to me, he's clear-minded. I'm his image bearer, and I'm supposed to be his representation to the world. I'm telling you... Today is your day, church. Stop running. Whatever it is, stop running. Because if you don't, well, we'll read the rest of Jonah and see what happens. Father, thank you for this day. As I invite the worship team to come to the stage, Lord, to close us in a song, I pray, Father, that you would be moving in our midst right now, not just in our midst, but on our hearts and on our minds, Lord. Set us free from the things that have enslaved us, and even greater, Lord, if we're running from you, help us to do an about-face and to return to you. You've called us for a destination, and all too often we go in the opposite direction. So, Father, my prayer this morning is for each and every person who's present in here and listening. Lord, save them. Pursue them. Speak to them, Lord. Do whatever it is that you have to do, no different than you did in the life of Jonah, to accomplish your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen.